0: Okay, it's uh, it's great to be back, and I'm very excited about studying uh, Genesis chapter 37, which is introduction to the st- story of Joseph. And a little background here, an introduction to what we're going to talk about today. Joseph has returned, Jacob, I'm sorry, Jacob has returned to his homeland in Canaan after being 20 years at least in Haran. He has a large family that now includes 12 sons. And he's a rich man. The focus of the Genesis story now turns to one of Jacob's sons in particular, Joseph. And in this lesson today, I want to introduce Joseph and the story. In the course of doing that, I'm going to be opening a few cans of worms that will not tie up the loose ends until until some subsequent classes. I'll throw some tough questions for you to ponder over the next few weeks of of things that we're going to be covering later on. Some things, some rather puzzling things in the story that we're going to look at today. And I want to look at one very important word in the Bible that first appears in this chapter and talk about the significance of that. So something is introduced here that, that passed my notice in the past. And then I want to solve at least one of the great spiritual mysteries of all time in the course of sometime in the next 45 minutes or so. So one, one maybe two or three, we'll see how we do. So let's, uh, let's dive in. One of the things that puzzled me for years when I was teaching the Old Testament is why is there so much in the book of Genesis that's focused on the life of Joseph? Because after all, I mean, here we are, chapter 37, 11 out of the next 13 chapters really are focused on the story of Joseph. So why is Joseph so important? I mean, how much is Joseph mentioned in the New Testament? He's hardly seems like he's hardly mentioned at all in the New Testament. You think about this, Adam, Adam is only in three chapters of the New Testament. Noah's in four. Melchizedek gets three verses in the New Testament. Uh, I'm sorry, he gets three verses in Genesis, but but, uh, chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7 in the book of Hebrews are about him. So why is it uh, the only people in Genesis who get as much attention as Joseph are Jacob, who's the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, and Abraham, the father of faith. So those are the three most important people, the most time spent on. So the Messiah is not descended from Joseph. All right, he's hardly mentioned the New Testament. So it's a question I wondered for years: Why is there so much attention? To Joseph? There must be something going on here that I'm missing. Why? What's the spiritual significance of Joseph? Uh, to us, and and in the course of the next few lessons, I think that'll become clear why there is so much on Joseph here. And I want to do what we've been doing all the way along: is look at this story in three levels. One is we take the basic storyline, make sure we understand all the details. Le- that's level one. Level two is take a look at the moral lessons that we are to learn from the story. Maybe things pointed out either things pointed out in the New Testament or things that are just just obvious here. Uh, Good and bad examples. And then level three, are there any possible allegorical foreshadowings? Like, you know, the the, the Passover lamb was a foreshadowing of Christ or or things like that. Are there any foreshadowings here in the story? Uh, Are there any clues that the New Testament writers give us that there's something more significant here? Or even the early Christians who are not inspired, but they have good insights too. Uh, So I'll throw out one question where is Joseph mentioned in the New Testament? Now, this isn't an obvious uh, this. Not, not, it's not an obvious question. To answer, but I'll just ask you to think about that. Where is Joseph mentioned in the New Testament? I can think of two places where he's mentioned, but uh, just just uh, give that some thought for a moment. One place is in Acts chapter seven, where Stephen gives his speech to the Sanhedrin. He summarizes the history of the Jews, and there he speaks mostly about Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. So we'll we'll touch more on that later. So that's one place, Acts chapter 7, Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin. The other place is a rather strange reference in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 22. It says, by faith, Joseph, Hebrews 11 is the, is the hall of the heroes of faith, examples of faith that we're supposed to follow. It says, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. So that's, that's a rather puzzling reference that, that Joseph said, After I'm dead, when you go back to the land of Canaan, take my bones with you. So there's something about something in faith tied in with that. So we'll we'll take a look at that one later as well. So that's it in the New Testament for Joseph. Is there another one? Matthew one sixteen. Okay, Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. That's a different Joseph. That's, that's Joseph, The good, good question. Somebody's got their electronic concordance going on. Okay, that's Joseph, the husband of Mary. I'm pretty sure. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, good. So different Joseph, but uh, good, good, uh, good comment there. Now, there's significance of Joseph in the grand scheme of the history of the Jewish nation. God had told Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, he said, Know for certain that your seed will be strangers in a land not their own and will serve them, and they will afflict and humble them for for 400 years. Also the nation they serve I will judge, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That's Genesis chapter 15 verses 13 and 14. So, God had told Abraham that his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan only after they were sent off to a foreign land and were afflicted there for 400 years. They come back to conquer and inherit. So Joseph's position is he's the one who gets the entire Jewish nation out of Canaan and landed in Egypt, setting up the fulfillment of this prophecy that God gave to, to, uh, uh, to Abraham. And so he this, this prophecy that the people would come back after 400 years of affliction, this is where Exodus chapter 1 picks up that the, the people, all the, the, all the descendants of Jacob are in the land of Egypt now, and a new pharaoh comes up who didn't know Joseph, and they're afflicted, everything else. And then, of course, that's fulfilled in the stories in Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and ultimately in Joshua, where they do come back and inherit the land. So Joseph Joseph was used to set the stage for the Exodus story and everything that follows. That's really important. Another reason I think it's 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 good to study Joseph is there are some wonderful character qualities that he has. Joseph, and I'll talk more about this in, in a future lesson, but Joseph has been an inspiration to me in a very personal way in difficult and challenging uh, times in my own life. So so, There are some some great qualities that are exhibited by Joseph that that I I really want to take a look at uh, a little later on. Now let's let's dive into the story here. Genesis chapter 37, I'm going to read verses 1 to 11. I'm reading from uh, Orthodox Study Bible, which is a translation based on the Septuagint. Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 to 11. Now, Jacob dwelt in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. This is the genealogy of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the sheep with his brothers. Now, the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. He also made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak civilly to him. Then Joseph had a dream and reported to his brothers. Thus he said to them, Hear this dream I dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves also stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. So his brothers said to him, shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers. And he said, look, I've dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bow down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come and bow down on the ground before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So, summary of the story. Joseph is a teenager. He's 17 years old. He's in Canaan with his family. Uh, He's shepherding. And just from from the past, Joseph is the second youngest in a family that has 12 boys in it. Second youngest boy. Only Benjamin, his full brother by the same mother, Rachel, is younger than he is. So first thing we learn about him is, is he gives a bad report regarding the conduct of four of his brothers, four of his older brothers, to his father, who was uh, named Jacob or Israel. So he's ratting on his four older brothers, and they don't like that. That's one thing. The second thing it says, he is his father Joseph's favorite. Now, that doesn't Exactly, engender warm feelings, feeling like there's one favorite child in the family, and you're not that child. <laughs> and Jacob gave his son, to, to make matters worse, he gave his son a special tunic of many colors. So he gave him a special, special coat or tunic to wear. Uh, it was uh, uh, very colorful. It was uh, uh, something that that you can imagine that just every time they see him, that just kind of reemphasizes all the bad feelings that they have toward him anyway. And then he has some dreams, and it mentions two of the dreams that he had. There's the sheaves dream. A sheaf is a, you know, you take grain and you uh, uh, pull it all together and and tie it around when you're harvesting. Each of the brothers, brothers is binding sheaves of grain. Joseph's sheaf stands upright and the sheaves that his brothers had bound together are bowing down on the ground before him. The brothers are angry and correctly say this is obviously a dream about he's going to be ruling over them. They're going to be bowing down to, to, to their younger brother. So they don't like that. They're very upset at that. And then the next dream is even worse. The sun, the moon, and the eleven stars. Number eleven. He has eleven brothers. So this is obviously his father figures that one out. The sun is the father. The moon is the mother. The eleven stars are his eleven brothers, and they're all bowing down. So now his father even is going to be bowing down to him. Uh, one thing that's puzzling to me is the moon represents his mother. However, Rachel was deceased at this point in time. So, uh, you know, I I, I don't know. Uh, how that all fits together, but that's that's what it says. The sun, the moon, and the 11 stars are, the whole family's bowing down to him. So, brother Joseph's brothers hate him. Why do they hate him? Three reasons. Number one, he exposed their sin. He exposed the sin of his four brothers. He gave a bad report of them. Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Bilhah, and Gad and Asher, the sons of Zilpah, four of his older brothers. Uh, he he uh, He shines the light on their sin. The second thing is envy, that their father loved him more than the other brothers and gave him a special coat. And the other one was resentment and jealousy. They didn't want him to be ruling over them. So those three reasons, and uh, you think about that, can you think of anybody else who is hated for those three reasons in history? He exposed the sin of his brothers uh, he was the beloved son of his father, and uh, they didn't want him ruling over them. Well, there's a, maybe you can think of somebody in the New Testament that, that uh, there's a little parallel there. So I'll just just uh, touch that, leave that for now, and move on. Let's continue with the story in Genesis chapter, 30, uh, chapter 37. And I'm going to read verses 12 through the end of the chapter. This is a longer passage, but I want to capture the whole story. I want you to pay particular attention to the details of the story. Every detail here is more important than you think it is. Genesis 37, verse 12. Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers shepherding the sheep in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. Then Israel said to him, go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the sheep and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him and there he was wandering the field. So the man asked him saying, what are you seeking? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Tell me where they're feeding their sheep. The man said to him, they've departed from here. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Verse eighteen. Now, when they saw him afar off, even before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him. Cast him into some pit, and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, Reuben, of course, Reuben is the oldest brother. Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. Again, Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit in the desert. Do not do not lay a hand on him, so that, he, so that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So it came to pass, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped the tunic of many colors off him. They took him and cast him into a pit, which was empty, for there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal, and lifted their eyes and looked. And there was a company of Ishmaelite wayfarers coming from Gilead with their camels bearing spices, balm and myrrh on their way to carry him down to Egypt. So Joseph said, So Judah said to his brothers, "What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites." but let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother in our flesh and his brothers listened thus the Midianite traders passed by the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of gold so they took Joseph to Egypt then Reuben returned to the pit and when he saw Joseph was not in there he tore his clothes so he returned to his brothers and said the lad is not here and I where shall I go Thus they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors and had it brought to their father and said, We found this. Do you know whether it's your son's tunic or not? So he recognized it and said, This is my son's tunic. A wild animal has devoured Joseph and carried him off. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. Thus all his sons and daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted, and he said, "I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning." So his father wept for him. Now the Midianite traders, now the Midianites, had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. So let's stop the story right there and go over the details. So Joseph is sent by his father to find his brothers who are tending the sheep in another location and uh, he, he, he ultimately he finds out that they're in Dothan and as he's approaching his brothers see him and conspire to kill him. They plan to cover up the crime by telling their father that a wild beast had devoured him. So that's their plan. Let's kill him Let's put an end to these dreams uh, and, and, and this idea that he's going to be ruling over us. Reuben, the oldest brother, is the good brother in this story. Uh, he doesn't want to kill Joseph and he secretly plans to rescue him from the pit. And then it seems that he seems to be that he he disappears for a period of time and comes back and is surprised to find that he's not in the pit anymore. The brothers take Joseph's colored tunic, they cast him into the empty pit or cistern. It's like a a pit you normally store water in. There's no water in it. The brothers decide after he's in there, let's take a break and have a little meal. And meanwhile Ishmaelite spice traders on their way to Egypt make an appearance. They're passing through. Judah comes up with a bright idea. Why should we kill him? What are we going to gain from that? Let's sell him into slavery. At least we can make some money off the deal. Besides, he is our brother after all. So uh, he's lifted out of the pit, sold for 20 pieces of gold, and bound off for Egypt as a slave. Reuben then comes back into the story, goes back into the pit, apparently unaware of what had transpired with, with uh, him being sold into slavery, sees that Joseph isn't there, and he's very distressed and confused. And he says, the lad is not here, and I, where shall I go? So he's completely doesn't know what to do. He's very upset at what had happened. Brothers kill a goat, dips Joseph's colored tunic in the blood, sent it back to their father as part of the deception, pretending that they found it that way. Jacob identifies it as uh, Joseph's robe. He weeps. He mourns. He uh, he's unable to be consoled. He's he's very distressed by this. And uh, then Joseph arrives in Egypt and sold as a slave to uh, Potiphar, captain of the guard, officer of Pharaoh. So this goes to show you how twisted the brothers were. That's right. The brothers are bad guys. Reuben is okay in this story, and maybe let's assume that Benjamin is too young to participate in this. He's the youngest of them all, and he's his, his, uh, his direct brother. But uh, all his half brothers, except for Reuben, are, are pretty bad in the story. What was the motivation for the crime? In, verse 30, in chapter 37, verse 20, it says, Let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. We'll see what will become of his dreams. I think they hated him, but the dreams put him over the edge. They said, that's it. There's no way this guy is going to rule over us. We're going to make sure it doesn't happen. I mean, this reminds me, honestly, there's there's a prophecy. The dreams are a prophecy, and they're trying to block the prophecy by killing it to make sure it doesn't happen. It reminds me of Matthew chapter 2, where Herod the Great, when the people tell him, oh, the king of the Jews is going to be born in Bethlehem. Where's the one born king of the Jews? Oh, it says that... Uh, the great ruler will be born in Bethlehem, so what does Herod do? He sends his soldiers in to kill all the children, all the babies in Bethlehem because he's going to put a stop to the prophecy and make sure it doesn't happen. Okay, So, lesson learned, if there's a prophecy, don't get in the way of the prophecy. There's no way you can stop it from happening. Now, at this point in time, ask you a question. Joseph is sold into slavery. Has he done anything wrong no, here. No, he hasn't. Yeah, I would say he hasn't. Some people say, well, he seems to be kind of arrogant. You know, he's, he's talking about his brothers bowing down to him, but he's just telling him a dream. He, You know, you can't control the dreams you have. You just have me just saying, hey, guess what? I had a dream. You might be interested to hear it. So he's telling them the dream. Uh, it seems to me I'd agree with Adam. I don't think he did anything wrong. He gave a bad report to his fathers about his brothers, but He's just telling the truth to his father about what happened. His brothers were the ones doing something unrighteous. His fathers loved him the best and gave him a special coat, but is that his fault? No, not really. So, and he had these dreams, but the dreams actually were fulfilled. So you can't blame him for sharing the dreams either. So I don't think he did anything wrong. His brothers, on the other hand, as Adam pointed out, did all kinds of things wrong. Four of his brothers were doing something unrighteous in their shepherding. It says in, in verse Genesis 37, verse 4, When the brothers saw their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and couldn't speak civilly to him. So they envied the close relationship they had with his father. They hated him. They couldn't even have pleasant conversation with him. They hated him so much. And then they planned premeditated first-degree murder. They said they see him coming, and they said, "Let's kill him." It's not some accident. It's not some something that happens in a moment of passion. They see him coming in the distance and plot the whole thing out, including the cover-up. And they're going to deceive. And then, and on top of that, then they're going to not only commit murder, but they're also going to deceive their father with this phony bloody color, blood-covered tunic that they happen to find in the desert story. And even when their father is weeping, is broken-hearted, is unconsolable, here the brothers are offering fake comfort to their father, trying to say, "You know, it's not that bad. You still have 11 sons." I don't know what they were saying, but they're they're off, they're trying to comfort their father and they know that that the whole story is a root. So, okay. So I mean, I count. You look at the Ten Commandments. I count at least five of them that they broke here. You know, conspiracy, to murder, dishonoring their father, stealing, false witness, coveting. Uh, they were they were wicked, wicked people. Now there are several very specific details in the story. Now this story could have been told if the the basics. They think. Of, what's the basic story? The basic storyline is Joseph's brothers hate him. And sold them to some trader bound to Egypt. Then they lied about it and concocted a story written by a wild animal. You could have you could have boiled it down to just something as simple as that because that gets Joseph into Egypt, right? It gets him into Egypt, and then he could end up uh, you know uh, uh, going on with the rest of the story. Why all these details? Why do we really need to know about things like? It was a multicolored coat that his father gave him. Why is that detail in the story? Is that really important to the main line of the story? Not really. Doesn't seem like it. Why does it say his father loved him more than any of his other brothers? Is that necessary? that We really have to know that. Uh, It it says... he was. He loved him because he was the son of his old age. But actually, Benjamin, he was even older than when he had Benjamin. He was the second, second youngest son. Why does it mention he was cast into a dry pit as a temporary holding place? Why do we need to know that detail of the story? Why is that in the story? Why does the story talk about this little side story of Reuben coming back to the pit later on and being astonished that he's not there? Is that necessary to have that detail in the story? And why does it mention the Midianite traders were traders of aromatic spices? Why is that in the story? Why do we need to know that? So I'll leave you with that. And we're going to come back and answer all those questions in a future class, either the next one or the one after that, hopefully. But I'll I'll just open, I'm going to open the can of worms for why all the details of this story. I want to take a look at some of the things regarding related to the significance of the story. And in particular, there's one word in the story that I never really noticed before. I'm going to read it in a different translation, which is actually even more accurate than the one I read to you, and see if you notice, if you can guess what the word is. This is from Brenton's English translation, the Septuagint, which is a little more old-fashioned, but very literal. This is Genesis 37, verse 35. And, and his sons and daughters gathered themselves together and came to comfort him, but he would not be comforted, saying, I will go down to my son mourning, to Hades. And his father wept for him. So I read this verse here and I thought, you know, I think this is the first place in the Bible that it talks about Hades. And it is. It turns out that it is. Or if you're reading in Hebrew Bible, it's it's Sheol. This is an extremely important word in the scriptures, and this is the first place it appears. The big question is, hey, what happens after you die? And up to this point in time, is there anything in the book of Genesis that tells us or gives us any clue that anyone had knowledge of what happens after they die? This is the first thing I can think of. He says, I will go down to my son mourning to Hades. So, Jacob believed that when he died, that he would see his son in Hades. The word Hades, it's a Greek word, reading out of a Greek Bible. It's the same as the word Sheol in Hebrew. So if you're looking at, the, if, if you're looking at a Hebrew uh, a Bible it's translation based on the, on the Greek or based on the Hebrew, depending on whether it's Masoretic text or Septuagint, in, in, in one, it will say Sheol. In another one, it will say Hebrews. It will say Hades, but it's exactly the same thing. Um, so, just a comment about this word. Depending on which Bible translation you're reading, sometimes when the translators came to this word, they would just simply leave it as Hades. Hades is a Greek word, and they'll just say they'll just say Hades in English. They'll leave it this, leave it alone. Or if they're using coming out of a Hebrew text, they'll leave it alone and just say sheol and leave it that way. However, sometimes they will translate it as the grave, that word, which creates some confusion. Because when I think of the grave, I think about three months ago, right after my mother's death, we went to the uh, cemetery and we went to the grave site. Now, I think of the grave, I think of the place in the ground where you bury somebody's body. Uh, But actually, that's not what they're talking about there. The grave is the place where the spirits of the dead go. So it's created some confusion. What makes it even more confusing is some of the older translations will translate it as hell. Like if you're reading out of the King James. It causes confusion because... The Bible talks about Hades, which is the place where the dead go temporarily before the day of judgment, and it talks about Gehenna, which is the lake of fire where after the day of judgment the wicked are all cast into the lake of fire, of Gehenna. So the both King James refers to both of them as hell, but they're they're two different places. And I would say like anything, don't take my word for this. If you want to check this out for yourself, you can look in an interlinear. You know, it has the Greek and and the uh, English together in an interlinear format, like the Apostolic Polyglot Bible, which has both the Greek and the the uh, Old Testament and New Testament. So this is the first passage that I can think of that talks about what happens after we die. So Jacob is the first person mentioning it. However, Job, who, as we discussed in earlier class, the previous class from Septuagint, Job 42, was the great-grandson of Jacob's twin Esau, also talks quite a bit about Hades and about going down to, to Hades. So he's familiar about that as the place where the dead go. Now, the word Hades, the reason why Hades is so important There's a pivotal verse in Acts chapter 2 where the Apostle Peter, on the day of Pentecost, here Jesus has risen from the dead, and he's speaking to thousands of Jews from all over the world who were gathered together in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And he's trying to explain to them that Jesus was the Messiah who died on the cross and rose from the dead in fulfillment of the scriptures. And Peter, in Acts chapter 2, verses 26 and 27, you can look along there with me, Peter quotes from Psalm 16, which if you're reading in a Septuagint Bible is Psalm 15, uh, slightly different numbering. Peter quotes from the Septuagint version, And he says in Acts chapter 2, verses 26 and 27, he's quoting from Psalm 16, he says, Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope. He's quoting from David about a thousand years beforehand. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, uh, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That's Acts 2, verses 26 and 27. So Peter says, the Messiah rose from the dead. After all, David promised us, you will not leave my soul in Hades. So Peter makes the point a few verses later, verse 31. Peter's referring to David, and he says, David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So this is a this is the first prophecy that Peter talks about, that the Messiah would be raised from the dead. His soul would not be left in Hades, which answers a few questions for us. Now, earlier in Genesis, we talked about man is consists of two parts, its body and spirit. And at death, the spirit departs from the body. Jesus' body was in the tomb for three days. He died on Friday and was raised on Sunday. Where was his spirit? Peter says, you will not leave my soul in Hades. So his soul went to Hades according to Peter, but it wasn't left there. On the third day he rose according to the Scriptures, according to what it says in Psalm 16. So while his body was in the tomb, his spirit was in Hades. Jesus makes, it makes the point in the Gospel of Luke and in Luke 24 and John chapter 20 that when Jesus rose from the dead, he wasn't a ghost, he wasn't a disembodied spirit. He says to Thomas, Feel my hands. I'm, I'm, you, you can see that it's my real body and it's got the holes in the hands. Uh, In Luke 24, it says that Jesus says, do you have any food here? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. He took it and he ate it in their presence. That's Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 43. So Jesus gave convincing proofs that it wasn't a spirit or apparition. It was a physical body. His body was raised from the dead. The tomb was empty. Peter, in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter alludes to this, that Christ's Spirit went down into Hades for the three days. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, he says, Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. So, what is that talking about? He's talking about spiritual spirits are not in physical prison; they're in spiritual prison. So, he's talking about Christ went and preached to the spirits who were in Hades. Hades is the place where the souls of the dead are resting. So, in one sense, they can't get out; they're imprisoned there. And Christ, it says that Christ preached to the spirits who are there. Well, what did he preach? It doesn't say. Did he preach the gospel to them, the people who had died before? Did he tell them what was going to come in the future on the day of judgment when they'd all be raised up again? It doesn't say, but when Christ died, his spirit descended into Hades, he preached to those who were there. Paul also alludes to this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. You can turn there. It says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Well, lower parts of the earth, what's that? It's basically the same, the Hades, you know. That's right, I I think it is. It seems to me that he's talking about the same thing. He descended, and then he ascended after that. He descended to Hades. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 40, says, Then some scribes and Pharisees answered uh, Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil, uh, evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. No sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So where is Hades? Jesus refers to it as in the heart of the earth. We know from Peter that he was in Hades. His soul was not left in Hades. Jesus refers to it here as in the heart of the earth. I think that's what what Paul is talking about there when he descended into the lower parts of the earth. So uh, what is at the center of the earth? I don't know if this is to be taken literally or figuratively, but Hades is described as in the heart of the earth. So Jesus said he'd spent three days in the heart of the earth. Paul says he descended into the lower parts of the earth. Peter says his spirit was in Hades, and he preached to the spirits in prison. All these are talking about the same thing. This is also in the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is a very old statement of faith. Many people believe that it was... Because of the way it's structured, it says, I believe in the Father, and it talks about the Father, I believe in the Son, talks about the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, talks about the Holy Spirit. People are baptized, they're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And uh, so the the old Apostles' Creed was, was, uh, many people believe it was a basic statement of faith that somebody would say, yeah, I believe in the Father, and I understand who the Father is, I believe in the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. But one of the things it says in the Apostles' Creed, an ancient statement of foundational faith, it says, I believe in the Son who was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into the lowermost parts of the earth. Literally, that's what it says in in the Old Greek. Some versions will say he descended into Hades. Or when I was a child growing up, the version I memorized it in was he descended into hell. But basically, he didn't go to the lake of fire, but that was something the Christians understood from the beginning. This was considered, somebody's going to get baptized. Well, of course, you believe that Jesus died, descended into Hades, and and then he, he rose from the dead. Well... Uh, nobody explained that to me until I started reading the early Christians and saw that they all believed that. So question I have is, this was obviously in the beginning a foundational core teaching, understanding what Hades is. Christians understood it in the beginning, but most Christians today don't get it. And uh, consequently, there's a lot of confusion that happens after we die. Many times I'll go to a funeral and they'll say at the funeral service, well, we know that Johnny or Mary is up in heaven right now looking down on us, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's what seems like every funeral I go to, somebody makes a statement like that supposedly to make people feel good. Well, Jesus himself descended into Hades before he was bodily resurrected, so We think we're going to go straight to heaven? I don't think so. Jesus Jesus said as much in Luke chapter 16, if let's read verses 19 to 23. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Jesus talked about people going to Hades after they die. There was a certain rich man, Luke 16, starting in verse 19, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at his gate desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. That's Luke 16, 19 to 23. And if it says, instead of Hades, if it says hell, the grave, or something else, you can look in an interlinear, that's actually what it says, Hades, literally. Uh, Early Christians understood from passages like this that when Christians, that when we die, the angels escort our spirits to Hades, the place where the dead, or spirits are waiting for the day of final judgment. And that Hades has two regions in it. One is an area of comfort where Lazarus was, and the other one, for the righteous, the other one was an area of torment where the rich man was, and there was a barrier you can't cross over between the two. The idea that we don't get immediately judged when we die, but we go to a waiting place, is also reinforced by what Jesus said. Earlier I read Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to continue reading from the same passage, verses 41 and 42. Jesus said, The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. The men of Nineveh lived hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. I'll continue. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Now, there's, there's a there's a, true, there's a gold of, of of wisdom contained in this passage right here. I just want to focus on one thing. The men of Nineveh, the queen of Sheba, who lived a thousand years before Jesus spoke and the people that Jesus was speaking to would all be there at the same time on the day of judgment. The day of judgment is all people, all nations gathered at one place at one point in time yet to come in the future. So the idea that Christians, when they die, go straight to heaven is nonsense is clearly not supported by Jesus there will be one day of judgment for mankind. Jesus taught that in Matthew 25 when he talks about the sheep and the goats. Uh, Jesus also said in John 5, 28, 29, he says, do not marvel at this. The hour is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. It's a rather vivid picture. You can imagine the next time you go by a graveyard that at some point in time, all those who were, who were in their graves will hear the voice of the Son of Man and rise up bodily out of their graves, be united with their spirits and transformed just like it talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's a whole chapter that talks about what happens after we die and the resurrection of the dead and final judgment. And uh, I will just take a look right now at at the end of that discussion. Paul makes the case in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that those who follow Christ... Christ was the first fruits. He was the the one who went before us. It's like the first fruits, the first fruit that comes off the tree. He was the first fruits, and those of us who are following him will follow the same pattern that he had in his life, death, and resurrection. And he concludes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'll read verses 51 to 58. Behold, I tell you a mystery. This is Paul writing. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, in a moment in the twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and the mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the sting of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your labor in the Lord your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The points Paul's making is our lives will follow the pattern set by Jesus if we follow him. Life, death, descent into Hades, physical resurrection, transformation, and eternal heavenly glory. In the end, Paul says, Where, O death, where, O Hades, is your victory? In the end, death and Hades, the faith that was lamented by Jacob and Job and David, will be defeated and Hades will be emptied in the end. And in view of this, of what lies before us, Paul admonishes us Christians to be steadfast, to be immovable, that nothing can budge us from our faith, and also always abounding in the work of the Lord. He says, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So to recap, this is the first place, Genesis chapter 37, where we get a glimpse into what happens after we die. Jacob knew somehow that he would see his son in Hades, Hades is the same as Sheol. Hades is the Greek word, Sheol is the Hebrew word. It's the intermediate resting place for the dead awaiting the day of final judgment. Sometimes in some translations refer to it as the grave. After Jesus died, while his body was in the tomb for three days, his spirit descended into Hades before he was resurrected. And Jesus confirmed in Luke 16 what Jacob had said is that's where our spirits will go. That's where the spirits of all the dead will go awaiting the day of final judgment. So uh, it's an admonition to all of us. I mean we Christians know one of the great mysteries and secrets of the universe, which is, What's going to happen after we die? We're the only people really on the face of the earth who understand exactly what's going to happen after we die and why it's so important to persevere and endure and to overcome and to remain faithful to the end. And for those who aren't Christians, when they take a look at this, what could be more important in life than making sure that when Hades is emptied, that you're you're judged among the righteous who who, who make it on the last day, that there we're not going to just be vaporized and disappear at the end of our life. That we're going to go to Hades and then we're going to fa- we're going to face final judgment afterwards. So what we what we do in this life really does matter, and really that's the most important thing. Uh, If the teaching on Hades is new to anyone listening to this message and you want to know more about that, it's just Chuck's not making this up, go back and study all the scriptures here. I think it's pretty clear. Uh, Also, for more information as far as that this is the historic faith, this is what Christians understood from the beginning. There are two audio messages, scroll publishing that David Rousseau did. One is what the early Christians believed about life after death, which goes into detail in this. And another one is a message on Christ's descent into Hades. Uh, and uh, and then, of course, on 1 Corinthians 15, we just touched on that, but we have a, a lesson when we're going through 1 Corinthians, which goes into a lot more detail on, on 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So we'll stop for there right now. Uh, for, uh, we'll stop there for right now and continue with the story of Joseph and the next lesson. Thank you.